Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and work. Let's get into this week's episode. Welcome. My name is Blake Dean, and I'm here with my co-host, the Reverend Dr. Aaron Monez, and you are listening to New Voices of Mutuality Matters, hosted by CBE International. Today, we are really excited to host pastor and author Taryn Williams. After a decade of leading the preaching team and sermon content creation of a vibrant church as it grew into the thousands, Taryn has now taken full time to writing books and creating video journeys to serve the wider church and world. He authored Biblica's Reach for Life Youth Bible with a print of 2 million in 30 languages. Seasoned church planner, he also created an intensive two-year church planters course that rolled out in the U.S., the U.K., in South Africa. Avid surfer, father of five, and coffee lover. His other passions um, is for skeptics and believers alike, building a bridge from God's word to your world. We're so excited that you're with us today. Fantastic to be with you. Well, we like to kind of loosen up before we dive right in. So Aaron, as always, what are you watching, reading, or listening to? Okay, friends, I have two. I'm going to pull a Blake Dean this time, and I'm going to actually choose two instead of just one um, because I, I just started this book. And usually I don't, I don't list books when I've just started them, but I'm so into this book that I had to talk about it. It is called Christological Anthropology in Historic Perspective. <laughs> And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That is, it's so nerdy. It's no, so nerdy, it. but I knew, I knew Blake would love it for sure because it's My got, it's, it's, it's got essays <laughs> about, uh, you know, Christ and the body and humanity from like, uh, Carl Barth and Gregory of Nyssa and, uh, Julian Norwich and James Cone. And so like, just, I'm really excited about this book, um, and just started it and I'm already geeking out about it. Um, but on a lighter note, I have gotten into a kick this summer listening to old, like, late 90s jams that I listened to in high school. And, I mean, so I, I just I just went in and I downloaded a ton of stuff that I haven't listened to since I was, like, 18. I'm talking, like, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Everclear. And it's just, like, wow. it's, it's just like the summers of my youth. And I made this massive playlist. And I – it's all – it's literally all I'm listening to <laughs> right now as far as music goes. And so – I but, you know – I don't know. Maybe this is a midlife thing, but I, I, I'm loving it. I'm loving every minute of it. I mean, what about you, Blake? As long as Lauren Hill's on that podcast, I feel fine, or on that playlist, I feel fine about it. Well, you know she is. And of course, it's with her original band, you know, before she went solo. Um, Okay, Blake Dean, what about you? Okay, I am, go with me on a journey, kids. I am listening to an album that I've been listening to for a while, and it's called, what is it called? Um, It sounds really depressing, but it's not. It's, um, it is entitled, this is really embarrassing, I'm looking right now, A Perfect Little Death, which sounds very depressing. It's not. It is an, it is an artist who, who took Sondheim songs. Sondheim is a musical theater composer uh, who wrote Into the Woods, Sweeney Todd, etc. But, like, rearranged them to the style of, like, Suffian Stevens. And so it's, hmm. like, two of my favorite things in one, and I love it. How did you find this? <laughs> who Who... Who knows these things? Uh, that would be me. That, would that be is me. you. Yes. <laughs> Taryn, what about you? What are you watching, reading, or listening to? Uh, what I'm reading is a book by Wilbur Smith. He's a, 
a historical fiction writer who actually lived uh, six months a, of a year uh, in the city of Cape Town. And I often see him at a mm. coffee shop I used to work at. And his most recent oh, wow. book, he I think he died last year. So it's lovely uh, reading his last book. And, um, and I'm just stuck in an adventure in the late 1700s. Um, that to counterbalance my more theological reading, I haven't uh, read um, anything in Christological anthropology, although my book might <laughs> fall in that genre. I did touch on Christ, <laughs> Christ and anthropology. Uh, but then my other theological book I've got into is a book called Known by God by Brian Rosner, um, Mm. who is a, a theology professor who partners with uh, Mike Bird in Ridley College in oh, Melbourne, yeah. Australia. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, for me, is one of the more devotional theological books I've read lately. I've just been pondering on the this subject of identity. And uh, mm. to get right to the heart of it, the, the, one of the goals of finding your identity to... <laughs> one of the goals of finding your identity is to uh, be known as God knows you. And uh, he explores the theology of being known by God. So I find that quite uh, devotional and uh, certainly uh, helps me feel closer to God. In terms of what I've been listening to, I've got five children between the ages of seven and 13 who absolutely <laughs> dominate um, the, the music selection of Spotify. Um, so I Indeed. was listening to Taylor Swift just before talking to you guys. <laughs> I love it. And then my wife, who that. just turned 40, um, went to France for three weeks. Before that, she'd only been away from our kids for three days. This was, oh, she had wow. planned this for 10 years. She said to me, either I go to France with you or without you. She ended up going without me. But um, <laughs> since she's been gone and ever since she's returned a few weeks ago, we listened to French cafe music on Spotify for dinner. Perfect music for a meal. <laughs> That's I great. Love it. Oh gosh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. That's amazing. Well, let's jump right in to talking about um, your book. Um, but first, uh, and you kind of gestured to it, even in your answer to watch, read, or listen, but your local context, you're in South Africa. Yeah. Um, and in, in your book, you reference that that is your context. And then obviously the um, history of apartheid. So I wonder how does your context in South Africa contribute to your work in gender theology um, and as a pastor? Well, it's an enormous question, and I'll probably just touch on one or two things. Uh, the first thing is that um, we've got a very recent example of theologians finding in the Bible support for what was actually an oppressive theology. Just decades ago, the top some of the top biblical scholars in the country found support for, um, you know, white people uh, oppressing black people. Uh, so that should put us in a humbled state that we mm. could do that again. We always imagine that we finally mm. ar arrived in the generation that has figured everything out, got rid of, got rid of all of our demons. And uh, so that humility helps um, us rethink our theology of gender. But then the mm. other thing is, uh, although there's a, a violence against women all over the world, it's particularly bad in South Africa. With something like one in two mm. women are sexually assaulted wow. sometime in their life. And uh, wow. the sociological uh, work uh, tells us that this is, you know, there are many different factors that cause this, poverty, education. But right at the heart of it is um, gender inequality, the belief in society or in a mind's man that, that a woman is less than him and therefore makes okay, uh, you know, the way he might treat her. And uh, mm. so I, I'm particularly concerned by the, imp the importing of complementarianism into Africa. 
there's a saying that says that when America sneezes, the rest of us get a cold. Well, we've seen that <laughs> in you know the economy. But the same yeah. is true theologically. It's amazing how influential American theology is in the rest of the world. Prosperity mm. theology has ravaged our continent. Wow. And I, mm. I think that complementarianism is another example of something that was imported and does a lot more damage here than it does in America. So, you know, complementarianism, positing a, a woman's subordination, if you're in a culture that is generally gender equal, the effects actually won't be that bad because society counterbalances mm. yeah. it. But I, I'm in a continent where there is gender inequality, and then that theology hits the churches. And yeah. Africa, sub-Sahara Africa, 60% um, church going. So, uh, you know, we, we get our ideas from these churches. These pastors yeah. get a lot of their ideas from America. And when that theology arrives of female subordination, you know, with all of the stride and confidence that John Piper and Wayne Grudem have invested into it, it really does damage women in a profound way. Um, you know, women in in gender unequal, especially developing world countries, their yeah. their experience is completely governed by the attitude and the disposition of the men in their life, their brothers, their uncles, their fathers, and uh, you know whether whether the, those men are benevolent or malevolent or whichever one they happen to be on any given day, uh, determines exactly or massively the experience of this woman's life. And uh, so, so because the, when that teaching comes to South Africa, it, it just does more damage. And, um, you know, complementarianism says that, that what we should be, what Christianity can contribute to society is benevolent patriarchy. Men are in charge. That's the way it is. But let's teach the men to be benevolent. But surely a better gift to society is gender equality, <laughs> where, where men just see women as their peers, as their equals, even if men and women are different, we're not collapsing the genders, you know, we're not, we're not undermining the distinctions, but just seeing them as fully person, as, as, as much as you are, yeah. is a better gift to society. And, uh, you know, the, the UN has created a, a huge goals to bring about gender equality in um, developing countries and finds that in more religious uh, cultures, they tend to have a hard job doing this because um, wow. churches tend to hear about gender equality and go, hang on, we don't believe that, do we? Um, mm. Mm. So, so I feel a particular burden to stop the importing of a destructive theology mm. to a continent that desperately needs the Bible's equalizing power. Mm -hmm. wow. Th thank you so yes. much for, for sharing that. That's mm -hmm. um, and, and the context I, I think is, is really, um, I think our listeners will find, find in incredibly helpful because uh, in a lot of these conversations, mm -hmm. and we have a whole podcast thread uh, with, with Mimi and Kim that tries to help outline gender theology in the global mm -hmm. perspective for that very yeah. reason, the idea that, our, our context mm -hmm. really does matter um, when we think about this because there are implications yeah. that we just, yeah. we often, we often forego. Um, now you, uh, you tackle a lot in your book, <laughs> but one of the places that you start with that I find particularly interesting is that you outline sort of a history of patriarchy in the church. And you note that there's this shift from, from female ontological inferiority. And for our, mm -hmm. for our friends that, that, 
that may not know exactly what that means is the idea that that women are are created inferior that 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 just by their very yeah. existence they they are, are um inferior to men mm-hmm. so this shift from the church thinking yeah. that women are ontologically inferior to complementarianism and then even soft complementarianism yeah. and so yeah. you outline this history can you give our listeners just a quick summary of this evolution and uh why it's important to know so um i was the teaching pastor of a mega church um in in south africa 10 different congregations or, or campuses and uh, for, I was the leading articulator for our complementarianism. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and one of the reasons that I was so sure that complementarianism was right is that, um, that egalitarianism was a completely novel doctrine. Surely something that arrives just a few decades ago, it might be right, mm-hmm. but it's probably not. So it gives you confidence. Yeah. It was, we had the impression that complementarianism, although it was a word coined by John Piper, summarized a teaching that was historic Orthodox Christianity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, um, but all that that evidenced is how profoundly um, um, historically um, forgetful we are. And, uh, and <laughs> as I studied uh, the history of the church and the doctrine of women, although uh, most Christians have believed that women are equally saved, uh, the idea of ontological inferiority means that they are made of lesser stuff. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. comes from misinterpreting two verses in particular, 1 Timothy 2 verse 14, Adam was, uh, sorry, Adam wasn't deceived, Eve was. So the idea is that she's right. intellectually and morally inferior. And then mm-hmm. 1 Corinthians 11, I think it's verse 7, where, where it says Adam was made in the image of God and Eve was made in the image of Adam. So she's lesser stuff. Yeah. So it, those passages got into the psyche of the church. And then pretty much every major church teacher would say things that um, would make the hair stand up on the back of your neck uh, in, right. in terms of women being inferior, uh, prone to deception, prone to instability, uh, not as intelligent as men. And in other words, no one, pretty much no one challenged um, patriarchy in the church. One, because we lived in a patriarchal culture, so we fit hand in glove talking about church history, but secondly, because both the church and culture Mm. assumed that women were inferior and therefore men led women for their own good. (laughs) And uh, so this was the idea of intellectual, of of, of ontological inferiority. Uh, Women are by nature inferior. They are intrinsically, inherently, they're made of lesser stuff. Um, Mm. That idea started getting chipped away, uh, you know, in the last 100 years. But it took a death blow in the 60s mm-hmm. and the 70s yeah. with the success of the women's liberation movement, uh, mm-hmm. where in a very yeah. short time, we just saw, you know, women being given equal treat, equal treatment and equal opportunities in education. And given that opportunity in education, they quickly started doing men's roles as well, if not better than men. Yeah. The whole of society realized, oh, my goodness, women are not inherently inferior to men. Their bodies might not be as strong generally, but pretty much everything else they've got. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and the, the church clashed with this initially, both the Catholic and the Protestant church kind of pushed back on it, but just for a, for a few years. And then they rapidly, you know, admitted, okay, no, no, women definitely are um, ontologically yeah. equal to men. And, uh, and then went back to their scriptures and rapidly revised their doctrines. And pretty much every church in the West, Catholic and Protestant, then started putting out uh, theologies mm-hmm. that affirmed the equality of, 
of uh, women and men. And uh, the most obvious example is, is the way that um, biblical theologians then changed the interpretation of 1 Timothy 2 verse 14 and had to come up with other reasons for uh, Eve being deceived. Um, yeah. so, so, so there was a brand new doctrine that arrived in the church in the 60s called the women's ontological uh, equality. This was a departure from church history. Um, mm-hmm. And pretty much everyone, egalitarians and complementarians, believe that. Complementarians, complementarianism and egalitarianism was born at the same time. So in answer to the question, mm-hmm. are women inferior to men? Egalitarians and complementarians said no. But immediately there was a fork in the road. Complementarians yeah. said, okay, women are not inferior to men, but they still need to be subordinate to men in the home, in the church, and in mm-hmm. society, uh, though that third part society, there's more and more debate about that in complementarianism, whereas egalitarians um, said, hang on, we're going, we, now that we're going back to the Bible, it doesn't say that they should be subordinate to men either. So, our, so, so, so there's three positions. There's historical hierarchy, hierarchicalism, which says um, women are inferior to men and therefore subordinate to men. Then mm-hmm. you got revised um, hierarchicalism, hierarchicalism, which says that women are not inferior to men, but they still need to be subordinate to women, to men, goodness. And then you've got, (laughs) then you've got egalitarianism. Women are not inferior to men and women are not uh, subordinate to men. But what complementarianism did, it was only named that 10 years later, is then it had to come up with new reasons in answer to the question, hang on, if women are equal to men, how come they still got to subordinate to them? Yeah. And the, the 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 founder of complementarian, uh, the complementarian method of interpreting scripture, is was a brilliant theologian called George Knight, who introduced most of the novel interpretations of scripture mm. that complementarians hold to this day. And uh, mm. uh, although there was resistance, um, he he approached John Piper and Wayne Grudem, and years later, to warn them about the rising egalitarian. Uh, threat yeah. and uh, they rose up and formed a, a, a powerful social religious movement called and it was John Piper who came up with the name complementarianism 10 years later yeah. the Danvers statement was written uh, recovering biblical manhood mm-hmm. and womanhood was written and uh, and and then Such we saw the rise of this powerful uh, religious yeah. social movement with literature the marshalling of conservative scholars in support of this new position and uh, but just in a in a short time, you have the impression that that this is what the church has always believed, and yet even in recovering biblical manhood and womanhood, John Piper stresses this is a new vision. So the point mm-hmm. here is that, um, the, that neither complementarianism or egalitarianism has a temporal priority. You know, is is yeah. shown to come earlier th- than the rest. If you believe women are equal to men. You have departed from church, from the historical doctrine. So the question is: Is it okay to po- depart from the historical doctrine? And I love Tim Keller's answer. He says that whenever the a church, uh, the, you know, the church in history has encountered a new culture, it's often made new discoveries in in that culture that caused it to read its own scriptures in a new light. And uh, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. so so I'm comfortable with um, departing from you know in, 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 in 
ontological inferiority as as pretty much everyone is in the Western church. Yeah. Um, but I do not find the new arguments that complementarians put forward compelling um, for why, because it just simply doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, yeah. at least um, ontological inferiority made sense. You subordinate because you're inferior. The new reasons that are put forward by complementarians are, 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 are have to do with uh, distorted ways of reading just a handful of proof texts. Yeah, thank you for that. That was so good. Um, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and then I have a follow-up question. Registration is now open for CBE's 2022 International Conference in Atlanta, Georgia. Join us in person August 5th through 7th as we explore the fullness of Galatians 3.28 beside leaders from around the world like Craig and Medine Keener, Mimi Haddad, Michelle Sanchez, David Hart, Michelle Williams, Grace Alzubi, and many more. We want you to be a part of the conversation on women, race, and ethnicity. You can register now as an individual for $299. Group and membership discounts are also available. Visit CBE's website to see information on the event schedule, lodging, speakers, and sponsorship opportunities. We hope to see you in just a few weeks as we explore the fullness of Galatians 3.28. Register today at cbe.today forward slash 2022-CONF. So you just kind of finished um, doing a really wonderful sketch of the kind of history of ontological inferiority as well as like the fairly modern um, arguments for both um, complementarian and egalitarianism. Um, and in your book, you have a quote um, and you talk about um, how the one thing that complementarians cannot have in order for them to maintain their position is a believing woman in biblical times or in the witness of the biblical text doing the thing that the interpretation that they hold says that she cannot do, which you then continue to say that we then have to make exceptions or different arguments yeah. for what Deborah's doing or what Priscilla's do- yeah, yeah. doing or what Junia is doing. Mm. And so um, I wonder if you could maybe quickly help us understand why a complementarian might be so reluctant to entertain scholarship or just the very presence of women in the text doing the thing that they ought not to be doing in their perspective. Um, I don't know if you've heard about Procrustes. He's this, uh, according to Greek Mm -hmm. legend, he hosts these weary travelers. He allows them to sleep on a bed in his house. And as they're asleep, he either cuts their limbs uh, short or their feet short always stretches out their bed, so their, their body so that they fit the bed. And uh, this gives rise uh, to an expression in the field of argument called a Procrustean bed, in which one person takes one view on a matter and then forces that view to fit with other sources of information that, in fact, disprove the view. Um, yeah. And uh, so as I studied complementarian um counter arguments to these biblical women in the Old Testament, the Gospels and, and the New Testament who were who were actually leading men or teaching men, uh, it dawns on me that 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 their reading or their misreading of 1 Timothy 2 verse 12 had become a procrustean bed for all women in ministry. So, yeah. you know, by interpreting it as I do not permit Christian women to authoritatively teach or exercise pastoral authority over Christian men, 
which by the way is what 1 Timothy 2 verse 12 doesn't say, but complementarians say it does say. <laughs> by, by taking <laughs> that interpretation, <laughs> they then use it to not only limit the ministry of women today, but to limit and reframe the ministry of every woman in the Bible. Um, mm, yeah. And uh, uh, for me, the most compelling example, well, there's actually there's actually two of the most powerful. The one is Deborah in the Old Testament, who mm. is leading men yeah. with spiritual authority. <laughs> and mm. when you look at the uh, complementarian counter arguments, they are so obviously weak. Yeah. Um, and, and then and then and then you've got Priscilla in Acts chapter 18, who, along with her husband, is um, trained up by Paul, relocates to Ephesus. He's there for one weekend, it seems. He leads a bunch of people to faith. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila in charge of this fledgling b- uh, bunch of believers. They stay involved in the synagogue, but they're now discipling the, these believers. So they're, they're looking after this mm. nascent church. And then you've got Apollos arriving, who is going to be one of the great teachers of the church. He has a seriously inadequate theology, not a problem. Priscilla will instruct him. <laughs> Talk about authoritative <laughs> teaching, you know, setting up his, his teaching ministry. Yeah. And then it seems that she introduces or they introduce him to their community. They send him out. And, uh, and then Paul returns and takes that church to another level. But a year and a half later, you still got Priscilla and Aquila in the Ephesian church, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, sends a greeting from Priscilla and Aquila who have a church meeting in their house. Um, and then in Acts chapter 20, when he gathers all of the elders um, after he'd left the Ephesian church for, I don't know, six months or a year, he, he, he speaks to them and he says, you were there, this team of elders, you were there on the first day that I arrived. In other words, either Priscilla and Aquila are in that, um, in that circle because, you know, they were there on the first day that Paul had arrived in Ephesus. He had taken them with him or they, they've left. But then the point is that, that that initial group of believers had been mm. discipled by Priscilla and Aquila. So Priscilla and Aquila not only teaching Apollos, they are discipling and caring for the nascent eldership team. And uh, yeah. I mean, how, how we can get to the point where you've got someone like Kevin DeYoung saying about Priscilla, she may have been learned, wise and influential, but there's no indication that she exercised teaching authority over men. It's just utterly bizarre. <laughs> And, uh, well, and it's such and it's such an interesting. It would be a way. It would be a more integrous argument, I think, if it was if it was about authority. If we were more clearly talking about authority and yeah, power, yeah. but we try to talk about teaching. It's like, well, you, we can't make that argument. We have women teaching throughout mm-hmm. Scripture. It's like even in uh, Mister De Young's argument. It's like, well, what you're not talking about is yeah. like you've conflated teaching and authoritative. Power, which yeah. may I remind is yeah. not the Christological mode, but like <laughs> in a way that is so both antithetical to the text and to the witness of the canon of scripture. I remember quickly sitting down with um, a complementarian who was really lovely to me, and we were like walking through the trouble passages together. And we were like, um, he was much older than me, he was being very kind, and we were talking about Deborah. And he was like, well, you know, like. Deborah was there because there wasn't a man to take that role mm-hmm. and like Barack didn't do it. And I went, okay, show it to me in the text. Yeah. Like show me in scripture. That is, 
that sounds plausible, but show me where it is. And he like was flipping through and looking. And he went, well, I know it's here somewhere. <laughs> and I was like, here's a secret. It's not. Yeah. Like, it's just not there. Um, yeah. But, yeah. That's, I'm uh, actually, yeah, that's um, for the CBE conference coming up, um, I'm doing a lecture um, because I live so far away on the southern tip of Africa. I'm sending a video, so I won't be in person. Um, but I'm doing a lecture on the evidence for Priscilla as pastor. So um, most of the egalitarian um, arguments, you know, are contending for Priscilla as a teacher of doctrine, which is really important. But very few seem to uh, yeah. uh, notice the evidence for Priscilla as pastor, which is even mm. more compelling. If you're Correct. pastor, then teaching is just one subsection of your function. Mm. Exactly. Well, and we we are so excited. In fact, uh, we we definitely want to highlight the conference here in a minute. But I think we have time for one more question. Blake, are you are you down for yeah for rocking one more? Um, so we really loved your epilogue, which is kind of a weird section to highlight. But Aaron and I talk a lot about how do we talk about gender theology, especially from an egalitarian perspective in a way that is following Paul's lead in knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified. Mm. Um, so not to become um, issue-based for the sake of issue-based, but to be Christocentric in a way that allows us mm. to be more faithful to who Christ is and the work of the Holy Spirit mm. um, among us. And you, this this is really, I think, what you're doing um, in your epilogue. Um, in, in your book, um, why is a strong Christology so important when we engage topics of gender theology? Why do you think? Well, if we go back to 1977, George Knight is writing his short book that he will call The Clear Teaching of Scripture on the Subject of Women and Authority. And he's basically looking at the proof, the proof texts. And, mm. Uh, mm. and he makes no mention of Jesus or the Gospels. So to arrive at mm. the clear teaching of anything with no mention <laughs> of Jesus in the Gospels might be a mistake. Um, there you go. And uh, Jesus, um, his treatment of women was absolutely groundbreaking. Yeah. I mean, in Luke 13, you've got Jesus teaching on a Sabbath in a synagogue, and uh, he encounters a woman. She's been crippled by Satan for 18 years. And, and it says that she was bent over and couldn't straighten up at all. And, and then I love this little line, when Jesus saw her, Mm -hmm. I'll say that again. Jesus saw mm -hmm. her. It actually caused me to name my book, How God Sees Women. Uh, but earlier in Luke's gospel, we find Jesus trying to help a, a man see a woman, when, uh, to, to see in a woman what Jesus sees. And it says, Jesus turned toward the woman and then said to the man, do you see this woman? Mm. And uh, his question echoes still to every one of us today. And, and Jesus' perception of the bent woman calls to mind God's vision of Hagar in Genesis. I mean, as God yeah. did for Hagar, so Jesus does here. And he doesn't just see her, he, he liberates her. He, he calls out her greatness. And, and then it says that he called her forward and he said, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. He touches her and she immediately straightens up. So she's, she's taller than she's ever been and she praises God. And then you, you imagine the delight and the rejoicing in, in, in the synagogue, but not so quick. The synagogue leader is enraged that Jesus would heal her on the Sabbath. And this infuriates Jesus, and he accuses the man of caring about his animals more than he does this woman. 
Here's a woman who for close on two decades has attended this faith community, disfigured and buckled over in pain. And the spiritual leader whose job it is to see people in the community as God sees them doesn't seem bothered by her dismal condition. It's only when she stands upright that he takes offense. Mm. And then, and then mm. if you know the story, Jesus sends shockwaves through the gathering as he bestows on this woman a title that has never been given before. He says, this woman mm. is a daughter of Abraham, is a daughter mm. of Abraham. And, uh, and right at the heart of complementarianism is a theology that, that, that tries to limit itself just that stresses the equality of women, you know, in terms of verbal formulation, but emphasizes keeping women in their place. And I, I remember once talking to my wife while I was writing this book, and I was saying, you know, there are a lot of churches that have got men that are upfront leaders and behind the scenes uh, women who are really comfortable playing the supportive role. There are a lot of marriages like that for whom complementarianism really poses no challenge. It just syncs up with their experience. And I was, I was saying, but what about all the women who do have gifts of teaching and who do have gifts of leadership? Now, I've been exposed to a lot of pain in women before I wrote my book, but since then, my goodness, I suppose you, if you write a book, mm. you're going to get a lot of people getting hold yeah. of you. And I've been, I've, yeah. I've, I've been so saddened by the amount of pain that complementarianism has caused to so many so many women. I mean, I've, I've got messages from uh, from women saying that they had actually abandoned their faith and then a friend recommended they read this book because they were sure that the Bible subordinated women and they just couldn't get wow. their head around it. And uh, then they realized actually that was the wrong teaching by their church. Uh, anyway, as I was talking to Julie, she said, no, Taryn, that's not the problem with complementarianism. She said the problem with complementarianism is that it's subtly causes men to see women in a certain way, just to mm -hmm. see them as less than. So when complementarianism hits Africa, men are going to see women as 40% less than them. Than them. In a yeah. gender equal country, uh, you know, say in America, men are going to see themselves themselves as, you know, 2% inferior, I mean, superior to women. But how, whatever that fraction is, a woman that is bent is just bent too much. Jesus' vision for women is that they would stand mm. upright. And, um, mm. and that really has been um, what I wanted to see happen in this book. It dawned on me that women were bent over in the church. Mm. And not all women, and not all women suffering from complementarianism, but, but too many women. Like there was this one yeah. woman in the synagogue in Luke 13. And I just, it, it, God wouldn't let me let this one go. Um, especially being in a country where we have had oppressive theology, just couldn't stomach passing on this theology to my children. So um, it, it cost me a fair amount in terms of my um, my own ecclesial journey. I was a, a leader in, an, in a complementarian movement, and changing my theology would cause me to forfeit that and, in a sense, start again. Um, but when I thought about what theology we're handing on to our kids – and when I thought about my kids one day growing up in a complementarian church and realizing what flimsy biblical arguments had been used to support it all these decades, it just seemed unforgivable mm. that, I, yeah. that I'd let that happen. And I thought I had to write my book. 
Well, we are so glad you did, and and we um, are are so excited that uh, we get to promote uh, the book on the podcast. We encourage listeners to go go out and buy God Sees Women. How, how God and Sees Women. Ha- <laughs> how God Sees and Women. It, how God the, Sees the, Women. The, the, the um, strap line is the end of patriarchy, if you're looking for it on Amazon. How God Sees Women, there it the is. end there of it patriarchy. Is. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's 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 so good. And um and also for anyone who hasn't registered for the conference yet, uh to to go. Um that's that's coming up really soon and get a chance to hear Taryn uh talk about uh Priscilla. I'm I'm actually very, very excited for for your workshop. But Taryn, how else can our listeners support you and follow you? Are you on social media? Do you have any projects coming up? We like to give everyone a little bit of time to just to just sound off a little bit and tell us uh, how we can follow and support you. Thank you. You could buy my book. That'd be fantastic. And and then lend it to one of your complementarian friends once you're done. And the higher <laughs> up they are in the ecclesial structures, the better. Um, that's the one thing you could do. Um, the other thing you could do is um, you could pray for uh, pray for me. In South Africa, uh, complementarianism dominates the you know, the church scene, and um, mm. I'm now in in a part-time leadership of a church that is, that has gender equality as one of, one of its values. And it's been so exciting, mm. yeah. but, but I just pray for a, in South Africa, a rising tide of gender equality, getting into local churches and they can experience some of the joy I'm experiencing my own marriage and in this church. Mm. And then the third thing is um, another author called Andrew Bartlett. who's written a book called men and women in Christ, fresh light from the biblical texts. Him and I have made friends, and we're wanting to, um, you know, see how we can team together to, um, especially to help uh, complementarians rethink um, uh, the matter and try to create a safe space yeah. for them. So you could pray for the two of us mm-hmm. as we team together. I love it. Yes. Absolutely. Um, well, wonderful. Friends, definitely go pick up the book, How God Sees Women. Register for the conference being held in Atlanta, Georgia, August 5th through 7th, exploring the fullness of Galatians 3, 28. We will have links to where you can buy Taryn's book in the show notes. And we just want to thank all of you again for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you can hear weekly from our other co-hosts and other themes as we develop content on gender theology for the gospel empowerment of men and women. And we would also like to thank Landon, our support tech, and the team at CBE International that make this podcast possible. I am Erin Moniz with my co-host Blake Dean, and we are Mutuality Matters. Thanks for listening. Looking for more information about CBE and our mission for biblical equality? Then please visit cbeinternational.org for more information. And please be sure to tune in each week for new episodes here or wherever else you listen to podcasts.